a Highline podcast. This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Welcome in, friends. We've made it to another podcasting milestone. Um, Episode one is big. Episode 50 is big. But episode 69. Nice. I mean, (laughs) we've made it. Nice. I think we've ascended. (laughs) We've done it. Now we have to wait for 100 and then all the way to 420. That's annoying, but that's just how the industry works. That's a huge gap. Yeah, sure is. Uh, yeah, but like if you're going to be podcasting, like you got to be in it for the long haul, Emily. Absolutely. That is do. that is very true. Yep. That is true. Yep. And well, happy milestone, everyone. Happy milestone. We've made it. <laughs> happy milestone. How are you two this week? You know, I have survived the holidays. I had to preach Blue Christmas, Christmas Eve, and the day after Christmas, all while having the flu. Mm-hmm. It was dreadful like i was just so exhausted i felt out of my body but i survived and i'm back fully as myself which out, is nice. wow so, out of your body like a spiritual experience but bad version not in a good way yeah, the, not yeah. in a good way yeah right. yeah i think josh remained healthy throughout this week yes. i'm recovering from a oh, stomach yeah. flu myself so yeah you guys have both been sick I'm, I'm doing great out here knocked out yeah absolutely we did <laughs> what are we drinking uh i'm drinking a negroni steven torner from the whiskey mm. bench would be proud dude are you Ooh. kidding every one of us is proud oh, that is a great well, drink i'm not as proud because i did buy a bottle of it from trader joe's like it's pre-packaged That's but right. it's it's pretty good no shame it's very convenient no shame on that no, no shame at all. What about you, Emily? I am two-fisting it, uh, per usual. My first beverage is a body armor, light. It is peach mango. Gotta stay hydrated uh, so I can keep feeding my baby. And then my second drink, because it's extremely cold here, and Wyoming is weird where we really have winter between the months of January and February, so winter is finally upon us. Uh, and since it's freezing cold, I am enjoying a nice hot mug of hot chocolate just your oh, classic hot chocolate i thought you were going to say british blend tea i was so ready for you to say tea no Missed no tea tonight i'm having hot chocolate That's with right. milk nice with milk that is the yes. appropriate way of preparing hot chocolate of course yep. it's the only way well i have i have the tea actually rounded out for us uh since you're not i'm oh, drinking good. a a hot mug of chamomile rose herbal tea with a dash of honey. It's delightful. It's doing wonders for my stomach, all the mint and all that good stuff. Mm. Yeah, soothe that tummy. It's very nice. Soothe that tummy. All right. All right. With the milestone on us. <laughs> nice giggle. Thank you for that. Um, I thought it would be appropriate that on this, the episode 69, 
of our podcast that we nice. actually we talk about sex. We haven't talked about it yet, so it's kind of fitting that we finally get to this topic. Yeah, what do you want to talk about? Well, Come on. Let's talk about sex. there are a few things. I mean, the low-hanging fruit here is talking about the way we were raised to think about sex, mm. right? Something about like, like I'm sure I could talk about purity culture for a few minutes or whatever. Okay. So that's an option, and I suppose we could start there, but I'm also curious to explore questions of like how I think the concept of virginity is kind of fake. Ooh. And Ooh. and I also want to talk about like is sex actually only for marriage, as the Christians like to say? Mm. Not sure. Ooh. Ooh. There's a lot. There's a lot. Yes. But maybe we should start with our backgrounds to it. Like how are we how like were your families, were your households, and maybe then your youth groups places that talked about <laughs> sex a lot, <laughs> talked about sex a little, not at all. Should should we should this be an explicit episode? Is this is this our first one? I think we might need to set it that way. I think we need. I think to, this yeah. might end up being an explicit episode. Just for the just for the fact that I know some of our patrons sometimes listen to us in the car when they're driving their kids places. Yeah, content, yeah. Yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> Good idea, Josh. Thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, how were, how were we raised? So I grew up, I don't feel like I was in purity culture. I do think I was purity culture adjacent. Like, I think some of the ideas were there, but I don't think it was as pushed on me as other people. Like, Stephen, I think it was pushed on you more. Than it was me. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I had, I had the purity ring. I went through a purity ceremony. Right. I see. I only knew people who did that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you, Josh. Yeah. Are you? Because I feel like compared to other people's experiences that I've learned about, I think that sex was not talked about very much for me. Like hmm. between me being homeschooled and getting some sex ed in high school, but not a lot, to sex being talked about in church sometimes but not often like i'm sure that we talked about it in youth group like i remember a couple uh like tough questions nights but uh like even that wasn't very like overblown hmm. in my opinion yeah i think sex was talked about more in my household than it was in church and youth group combined um hmm. that seems healthy i like that yeah and well, and I was laughing earlier because I was thinking back to when my parents gave me the sex talk, my mother's version, she works in the medical field. So she was, I mean, pretty, pretty technical and kind of straightforward, didn't try to scare me or anything, but, you know, would like answer questions and things of that nature. My dad was more on the creative side and he talked about sex as if it was riding a motorcycle. That's beautiful. Beautiful analogy. That's, that is pretty on brand for your dad. <laughs> I will never forget it. He, I just remember That's him awesome. like looking at me and being like, you know, Emily, motorcycles come in all shapes and sizes. And while it may be fun, you still need to wear a helmet. It doesn't matter what type of bike. And I remember thinking to myself, like, as I went to school wow. the weeks to come, I would look at my male peers and be like, I wonder what kind of motorcycle you have. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my God. And, and just wondering, like, 
do they know, like, do they understand what their bodies are capable of? And, you know, motorcycles can be dangerous, but they're exciting. And, you know, we need to have, we need to be fully equipped to ride these bikes. And my friends were just like, whoa, remind me to never hang out with your parents. This is a lot. Yeah. (laughs) There was a lot to unpack there. That's fun. Was funny. But the fact that it was memorable, I think for me, just shows me that you can find ways of talking about quote unquote uncomfortable topics in ways that are comfortable. So like for my dad, Mm. raising all girls, having no boys in the house, like Mm. he had to find a way to talk about that for a way that was comfortable for him. My mom, on the other hand, she could be explicit as much as she wanted because my sister and I were girls and we were comfortable with that. Like we felt comfortable talking about those things with our mom and poor dad had to deal with all that estrogen and just did not know how to make sense of it because he grew up in a household entirely of boys. So this was something like totally new for him. Wow. And sex was one of those topics that we did talk about, but we found ways of approaching it in comfortable conversation. Well, and there's certainly something to be said for like shaping the tone of the conversation that is appropriate for the age at which you're engaging. So him as a parent, like doing that, that just, that seems nice. That seems healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (sighs) Did you get a lot of talk? So Josh, you, you had a little sex education in high school. So did I. So Emily, I'm curious because, uh, you, you, you said a phrase in there, something about like, it might be fun, but you should always like wear a helmet. Uh huh. So, uh-huh. how early did like the conversation about safe sex start happening for you? And it was was it always? I don't know. I I I've always struggled to think about Christians talking about sex without just basically saying, "Just don't do it till you're married. Then you can have unprotected and all the wild sex you want mm, because you're married sure. and you're both really horny." You know. Right. So like, did the safe sex conversation start earlier for you? Like, was that part of it? It was. Yeah. I was like in eighth grade when we started talking about safe sex. And I think part of that was much earlier. Our pastor, actually, two of his children ended up having children out of wedlock, you know, which for our church many of the congregants just were a complete shock and they looked at that family differently ever since that happened. And so Mm. I remember like my parents didn't want that shame put on us if we were to ever be in that situation. So rather than having the conversation be out of fear and shame, it was more out of let's just give them knowledge so they are aware and prepared. Wow. And I think the more open the conversation, and actually, looking back, the more open the conversation was, the less I wanted to actually like participate in activities like that. Like, if my parents were to hound me on drugs and alcohol, I would have been that kid that would have been like, "Well, I'm just gonna rebel and and do drugs and alcohol," you know. Yeah, but because right. we were so open about that conversation, it was okay. Well, I don't really like feel motivated to to do those things, so. And I think sex is one of those things as well. Wow. That's like the weird paradox of purity culture is like, it, it, I feel like purity culture, this is like coming from like kind of an outside adjacent perspective, obviously. But I feel like it assumes that the more that we talk about it, 
the more likely you are to go do it. So like avoid the like avoid the kinky stuff, avoid the taboo, just tell people to not engage with it. But like that actually creates more engagement. Yeah. Or like right. more curiosity yeah. or more, yeah, more people <laughs> like likely to engage in unsafe sex. Yeah. Too. It's almost like education is a lot like, more uh, effective than prohibition. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Who would have thought? What? Crazy. So speaking of which, what do you think of the take that, cause I've heard this from a couple people and I think it makes sense that the hypothesis that purity culture in the nineties and the early aughts was mostly derivative of parents who had lived through the the sex crazed 70s and had mm-hmm. then had their Jesus moment with the Jesus movement and like went full opposite direction in terms of sexual practice. I, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I could see that. I think it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like it like I yeah, I could totally see parents seeing like some of the downfalls of just like open free love because like I mean there's pros and cons to everything. And then trying to like avoid those cons for their children by like going the complete extreme hmm. the other way. Yeah. But yeah. then like that creating its own sets of issues. And I think culturally too, like I'm just thinking of who were some like pop artists and things at the time where they were very sexualized, whereas that mm. wasn't really a thing in music before. Like, yes, sex was talked about in music, but I'm just thinking of hmm. like Meatloaf, for instance, you know, like. A lot of his ballads, when he talks about sex, it's not so kinky. It's more like passionate and it's Mm. more out of like this actual love type of angle. Mm. Whereas we're looking at, you know, artists like Britney Spears and rappers and things like that, where when they talk about sex, it's more about like just explicit acts of just sex. Um, like no emotion behind it, very dominant, very physical, it's right? Like musical and, pornography, really. Basically, yeah. yeah. And so I think that definitely was a huge drive for purity culture as well, because there were so mm. many cultural influences outside that were saying, hey, here's this. And I think the church then found a way to try to counter that. That's a good point. Okay. So are everyone that's rebelling feels like the wrong word for it, but like for me, like, having deconstructed purity culture, like for everyone who's just mostly rejecting some core tenets of what I was taught about sexuality when I was 13 years old, am I just like perpetuating that cycle and we're going to have another purity culture in like 40 years? Because like, I mean, you know, maybe, but like, I, like I see what you're saying about like the pendulum swinging, but I don't think it's going to be exactly the same. I think, yeah, I think it is going to swing, but not in the same sense as it did before. Right. Did I ever tell you guys my story of uh, my purity ring breaking? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but you need to tell it on, you need to tell it here. I got to tell it on this episode. I also want to mention that I, uh, I did a deep dive on this story and this concept when I was a guest on the Growing Up Christian podcast. And we had, we had a lot of fun over there. I was just listening to bits of that. Um, yeah. So basically... I I grew up in the the purity culture thing. I went through the true love waits curriculum, right? And got my purity ring and we did this big, like, it was like a half-baked wedding ceremony, but it was like, do you promise to be married to Jesus until you get married to a woman? <gasps> um, Married to Jesus? I, I mean, do. we weren't did saying that. Did they use that, that language? We weren't saying that with words, but we had well, like- the bride of Christ. We had like a full-on ceremony in the church, like a candlelit ceremony in the church 
as a youth group. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Oh, it was a mass wedding. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I see. It wasn't like just for you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. We're all kind of like sister wives of Jesus. <laughs> That's the, the girl sister defined wives of, of Jesus. Jesus. That's so funny. That's very good. That's funny. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I got my purity ring and I went into high school and uh, having been homeschooled up until then, going to high school was just a huge culture shock to me. But part of it was like, oh, there's a lot of pretty girls around here. <laughs> And then I started dating I Dixie. Just imagine you saying that. Yeah, I don't think I ever said that sentence out loud, but I mean, basically, you know how a 13 year old thinks, right? 13, 14, something like that. Anyway, uh, Dixie and I started dating. We dated for a couple years and uh, we, we gave each other our virginity, as it were, as the social concept exists. And literally, the morning after. I woke up and my purity ring had cracked in two. <gasps> Steven. And I literally thought it was a sign from God. <laughs> Straight out of Lord of the Rings. Oh. oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Your soul. Big deal. Steven, I mean, obviously, like, like, horniness is one thing, but, like, what do you mm. think was the turning point for you in mm. you changing your beliefs like your religious spiritual beliefs about sex, because that's what is so intriguing to me about purity culture is like, obviously sex is universal, but like Christians mm. religify it. Yeah. Right. Well, so first of all, I think just my own experience kind of driv drove my deconstruction first in that I was always told basically your life is going to be ruined if you have sex before marriage, right? Like it was, it was like Pun the intended. sword. It was, thank you. It was like the sword of Damocles, but just naked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Dixie and I had sex when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, and then we broke up for a year because we felt a lot of Christian guilt about that. Um, and then mm -hmm. we started dating my senior year again. And then three years later through two years of college, we got engaged and we got married. And I, I remember being taught like, Having sex before marriage is going to like completely ruin your experience of sex with your spouse. And then I married the person that I had premarital sex with. And literally like the day after getting married, I was like, wait, so I really had nothing to be afraid of. So like, I guess my own experience mm. is a little bit different in that. Like it is the same person for mm. me. Like she's the only woman I've ever kissed, you know, mm. cue everyone going, oh, high school sweethearts. <laughs> Um, but for me, I was like, I, I don't, I, I know I should feel, or I'm being told that I should feel shame about not having saved the gift of my virginity for my wedding night or whatever. But when, uh, to be honest, Dixie and I, our wedding night was probably better because we had had sex before and we knew what we mm. liked about each other. Mm. Sure. If I'm going to put it that way, like I've heard absolute horror stories of good evangelical Christians getting married and having the worst honeymoons ever Yeah, because of this. So that like, I know that's going to sound like, Oh, these deconstruction people just like to, they just want to sin more or whatever. And you're right. We do. I mean, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but the concept, the street cloud, but, but the concept of like the one man, one woman, save your penis for your wedding night or save your hymen, right? There's the explicit tag. 
like I don't I don't really see that in the Bible either. We don't have monogamous men in the Bible. They're Solomon had like thousands mm-hmm. of women. Mm-hmm. So, so like I think that that was like the turning point for me actually. Yeah. Like so unfortunately, it, it, it took apologetics. me an extra step to get there. It took me having mm. the personal experience of like, oh, my life wasn't ruined. Oh, and also like, literally, almost every man we prize in the Bible is like good. Upset. David was <laughs> a man after God's own heart. Had right hundreds of wives. What are we talking about? <laughs> right. <sighs> Sorry, I cut you off. Please continue. No, I was just gonna say like, unfortunately, like Christianity taught me logic, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Like apologetics, uh, <laughs> didn't see that one coming. Oof. Oh my gosh, uh, that was like, funny. Because, <laughs> like, Stephen, you're totally right that, like, like I don't think the Bible clearly prohibits or like clearly prescripts sexual monogamy one person forever. Right? Mm-hmm. Is that a norm that has been created? Sure. Yeah. But, like, I don't necessarily think that the Bible is arguing for that sexual ethic. I think that some people even, like, even if they believe that Christians should, I think I've heard some people make the argument that, like, they don't think it does either, but the Bible assumes that to be the norm, at least in Mm. the New Testament, which I don't think I completely agree with that. I mean, obviously, like, Judaism and, like, second century Jews, like, did have a certain family culture. But also, like, the Old Testament, like, like just that you pointed out, like, the Old Testament culture around marriage is, like, completely different. Like, dude, like, one of the most famous stories of Jacob is, like, him getting two wives. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the, the difference between, well, I mean, we don't have to get into a whole, like, Old Testament, New Testament trajectory discussion, but I think that the sexual ethic difference between testaments is really good evidence for a developing and progressive sexual ethic. Yes. Mm. Oh, Ple- preach it. Please talk about preach that more. It. Keep going. Because I, as similar as it seems, I think that a lot of people associate polygamy with modern day polyamory and mm. they are like functionally very different. Mm. I'm not, I'm not making an argument for polyamory mm. here. I personally have very mixed feelings about that. But like like polygamy, especially like in antiquity, is very rooted in patriarchy, as in like men are literally running the society and like women have almost no rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. But but also in in the way of like, I think the Bible like speaks to this a lot that like even in that sexual and societal ethic, the people were finding like ways to take care of people who need it taken care of. Like, I think that that's why there's so much talk in the Bible of take care of the widow and the orphan. And um, mm, yeah, like they're trying to like find the ethicalness in their systems. Mm-hmm. But then like fast forward to the new Testament, like there's, n- I don't think there's a single reference to someone having multiple wives. I could be wrong, but mm. I, and I'm sure it was happening somewhere, but like certainly seems less common. And then like fast forward to today, like no evangelical Christian even in the height of purity culture would argue for that. Save the mm. fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. <laughs> they obviously are trying to return to making marriage great again. Nice. But <laughs> man, you were full of them today. Dang. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Negroni. That's good. Absolutely. <laughs> Shout out to Joe. Trader Joe. Is that who you're shouting out? Yeah, Trader oh Joe. Oh my God. But like seeing that distinction, I think was what, my turning point was like, I don't think it was experientially based for me 
in me changing my mind about a Christian sexual ethic, or even if Christianity has anything to say about sexual ethics, because mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't really speak to it a ton. This is true. I mean, he, you could he, argue he does a couple he talks times, about but. lusting being equivalent to adultery. Yeah. And I guess he like, he forgives the woman caught in adultery after scaring off all the people who wanted to stone her. But I think the most famous example of uh, modern day Christians arguing that the New Testament is preaching a certain sexual ethic is when Jesus quotes Genesis and he says, like, for this reason, a man will leave yeah. Yeah. His, mm. his household and marry yeah. a woman, which actually is very backwards from what, it, like what the societal norms were at mm-hmm. the time. Yeah. That's like an upside down kingdom kind of picture. That, I mean, like, that's the perspective that I've taken to. Like, I've heard people argue for this, um, that what he's not trying to affirm in the text, it doesn't seem like he's trying to affirm one man, one woman together. Like, that's not the point that he's making. The point he's making is the, the way of the kingdom. Here's is, another way to be countercultural in the place that we are. Yeah. yeah. Like, back yeah. in that day, like, the man wouldn't leave the family. Oh, great point. Yeah. Yeah. It was socially very taboo to leave the family. Hello, prodigal son parable. Yes. So Jesus Uh, in that quoting is being controversial. It's more about the man leaving his father and mother than it is cleaving to a woman and becoming one. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. So that is the fun part is the way that we can like, we can skip over all the patriarchs of Abrahamic traditions, Abraham himself, you know, we can also talk about all the weird that happens like right after Sodom and Gomorrah where I was literally just thinking that where Lot's daughters seduce him and get pregnant like well I mean they had to replace their mom their mom got turned into a rock that's true that's true hey do you ever think about the only rock we eat if Sarah turned around and she turned into salt who turned around to know that she turned into salt but didn't turn into salt bingo that's cute you too that's a question what are we okay? So yeah, we can skip over all these these guys that do really messed up sexual things. I mean, David like seduces Bathsheba with a crazy power differential that is very like mod- what we would call modern day like rape. Uh, yes, and then he has yes. her husband killed, who is serving him in his army. <laughs> like we can skip all over all these guys that are big like faith giants because they're in the Hebrews Hall of Faith or whatever. But we go straight to Adam and Eve and they're like, see, it's Adam and Eve. It's not Adam and Steve or it's not Adam and Eve and Deborah or whatever. So one man, one woman. <laughs> like, I don't understand. Like, we can we can skip everything on, like, everything in the middle of the Bible. We'll take the first few pages to inform our marital and sexual ethic and a few things from the New Testament. And then, then we're going to build this whole thing that sure. is just a way to, like, perpetuate control over young people's bodies. That's how I feel about it right now. Emily, I would love to get your take on something. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, Particularly, I'm thinking of... uh, So I want your opinion on this, mostly because you're a woman pastor. I'm not going to lie. But also, I think you're smart. So I... (laughs) How about the other way around? I think you're smart and also you're a woman pastor. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Look, this Negroni, you guys, is... (laughs) It is. It's kicking in, man. It's delicious. And I'm drinking half of it. Okay, so one of, like, Stephen, one of the things you just made me think about is how, like, the Old Testament totally has a slew of men just running rampant. Like, it is very clearly abuse. Like, you don't even have to, like, I think even, like, people in purity culture, like, 
recognize that. And then like fast forward to New Testament, Hall of Faith, like all of these men are, what do you call it? Like honored, for lack of a better word. And I see this dichotomy in modern day purity culture of like doing a similar thing to current present day abusers who like Mm. abuse women or children and we like give them like a hall of faith treatment but then also preach like if you sexually sin it's like the worst thing you could do Mm. but then like Mm -hmm. in practice like look at the fruit of their ministries not much is affected like when it happens like especially in an abuse situation right and i'm not asking you to, to explain this emily but like I would love your thoughts on like that dissonance. Oh, gosh, where do I even begin? We just want to say how honored we are that you listen to Ravel. Seriously, there's a lot of great shows out there and we're grateful to be in your feed. Thank you for helping us on our journey to normalize people asking questions about theology. If you want to support what we're doing, the best way to help is to tell a friend about us. We want to be a resource for people on their faith journeys, whether they're deconstructing, reconstructing, switching churches, deconverting, and everything in between. And if you're able, you can support us for as little as $3 a month on our Patreon. Supporting us helps us cover fees, software, equipment, future ideas, and more. For all of you church finance skeptics out there like me, don't worry, we're keeping an open book for transparency. For our supporters, we've built an online space where we can be together. We know it can be difficult to ask questions about our faith, so we want to make that more accessible, comfortable, and normal. We're using an app called Discord, where you'll get private access. You already know us, and we'd love to get to know you. Thank you to everyone who's already supporting, and thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music, In Full Color. Ravel is a founding podcast of the Heinlein Media Network, and here's a word from one of our sister shows, The Whiskey Bench. Ludwig von Mises, who is an Austrian economist um, who escaped World War II and made his way to America, he spent pretty much his whole career trying to explain, like, why socialism is a bad idea right and one of his most like prescient arguments was is what he called the knowledge problem which is basically the idea that no one individual has enough knowledge to effectively and efficiently organize society and like plan an economy and that's because knowledge is dispersed amongst individuals and now back to the conversation i think one of the things that pops into my mind for sure is I think the huge weight in those instances that's placed on one, the victim of those situations of abuse, but also just the primary act of sex and sexual sin on women. Mm. And I'll tell you why. If a man was to go out on a weekend, go to a bar, pick up a girl and bring her home, they have a good time, whatever, He can go and gloat to his friends and he gets a slap on the back like, good for you, man. You rock. If a woman was to go to a bar, pick up a guy, they go home, have a good time, and then tell her friends and people overhear that, well, then she's a hussy. She is a sexual predator who lures men 
and she should be shamed for it. And it's one of those instances where I think it's because the fact that women for so long have been sexualized for certain reasons and certain elements, even though those elements that are being sexualized have nothing to actually do with sex. So I'm thinking Mm -hmm. of like breastfeeding, for example, and I know I'm kind of going all over the place, but it just came to mind. Like breastfeeding. If a woman was to breastfeed in public, oh my gosh, the amount of shame that gets put on her for feeding her child is absurd. Yet people are okay with women who work at Hooters and their tits are out and their shirts are, you know, squishing their boobs out and their shorts are so cut short that you can see practically everything that's going on down there. And that's okay. That is completely fine. But the purpose of what a boob actually does and the fact that it's being used in that capacity is so disturbing and is so gross to people. It's so disgusting to people. I just, I'm so confused about why that's the case. Like the actual function of the thing that you are sexualizing is what bothers you. Anything outside of that, you're completely comfortable with. And I think that's how women in sex just overall is the same way. Like if women were to enjoy sex, that just seems so crazy to people. But anything outside, like if anything outside of that, just it seems so like discombobulated in a way. And I think that's partially why abusive situations are so hard to talk about is because if a woman was to enjoy sex and then she was to be abused later, it would be like, well, you, you know, you were asking for it or you, you entered into the situation, you, you provoked it type of thing. So there's no way it could actually happen when that's not the case. And I think there's just so much dialogue that needs to happen, like safe conversations that need to happen about sex and safe sex and power dynamics. Oh, Lord. Power dynamics in like relationships is a huge thing, especially when it comes to sex and holding that mm-hmm. over people's head. Mm-hmm. That's something that is not talked about enough. And it's something that definitely needs to be talked about for sure. Well, and that was something that even was co-opted by, at least my understanding of it, that was kind of co-opted by like the the perfect idea of like the American housewife of the power differential that exists that no one was talking about was like, yeah, he's making all the money, so she should probably put out and she should like clean the whole house or whatever. Like even that was being informed by the power differential of like, he's the main, he right now in our culture, like men just bring home the money. They have the day jobs and the housewives stay home or whatever. And it was like a massive amount of pressure that just should not be there in a relationship. And I think what, what is so interesting about that is all the weight and the pressure that's put on women to uphold like sexual responsibility and obligation, like the various types of birth control and things like that nature. Whereas women can only get pregnant like so many times a year, but a man can impregnate (laughs) women every day. Yeah. 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 From like age 12 to like 90 something. Yep. Oh yeah. This is, you know, like you've, I mean, there have been crazy stories of women who were in a swimming pool and got pregnant because a man ejaculated into a swimming pool. Yes. Like three women, three women had gotten pregnant in a swimming pool. Because a man had ejaculated into the swimming pool and like 
the sperm were able to survive the chlorine and all that and like work its way up into the fallopian tubes and like the science behind it is completely crazy but it's happened and those yet, are some strong swimmers. And yet, the immaculate conception the fact, at the YMCA. <laughs> oh boy, wouldn't that be a headliner? Holy crap! But the fact of the matter is, is like the the responsibility is still like placed on the women, like to go yeah. and to make sure that she's healthy and that the fetus is healthy and all these other obligations. But it's like the dude is the one that got her into this, like situation in the first place and i would argue that us dudes who grew up in the late 90s early 2000s would have less of a problem with it had the conversation started earlier at home yeah and more about safe sex than just don't do it yes yes emily i'm glad that you're bringing up like the victim perspective Mm. because i i like to give people the benefit of the doubt and i like to think that the people who were the first pioneers of purity culture were trying to prevent that. Yes, mm. I would I would say that, yeah. Like I, I like to think that that was the original intention even though like what it has turned into is like people not being able to sexually function. Sure. Like sure. I don't know. But like how do you find the balance there? Mm. Yeah. Like how do you protect people and like give them a like sustainable, a safe sexual ethic? How do you make it like religiously informed, but also how do you not well, like traumatically prevent people from their sexuality i think that right there like your question points out the solution is like it has to be Mm. it has to be biblically sound which means we have to actually look at the bible and see Mm. what is missing from the bible like what are those stories and those conversations that are not had in the bible what are the things that are actually addressed and how can we as modern day readers read that because when I was learning about sex, at least from the youth group perspective, we didn't really tie in the Bible all that much. Like, mm, we didn't talk about like specific stories. We didn't talk about like, well, it says explicitly here in this chapter and in this verse that sex is bad or you're going to die if you have sex before marriage. Like, that angle was never used. What was talked about was here are questions of, you know, Mary getting pregnant and she's 14. Here's, you know, questions of lust and things of that nature that's found in the Bible. But we never actually got into specific situations in the Bible. And so Mm. if we were to use the Bible to steer conversation, we need to be careful about how we're actually using the Bible. Because if we're using it as a weapon or a tool of fear, then you're not actually going to get the results that you want. Yeah, I'd have concubines by now. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. man, that's very true. Yeah, like that. I think that's just a good hermeneutical point, too. Like, just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean it's a prescript. It doesn't mean it's telling us we should do it. Right, exactly. And that's even if you believe the Bible is like, has like some sort of spiritual authority. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's step one. Like, for instance, I, I think I respect the Bible. I'm not convinced the Bible holds authority over sexual ethic, but I do think it can inform. Oh, it can inform. Definitely. I don't know. It, it's hard for me to like put it to words. Like, for instance, what I'm thinking of is Jesus, uh, like Jesus's behavior with the woman caught in adultery, which might not have even been in the original text, but also the... So I think that's in Mark, right? 
But or the other one where like the woman has had five husbands and like Jesus, uh, quote unquote, the sees Samaritan her sin. woman at the well. Yeah, yeah. The Samaritan mm-hmm. woman. Mm-hmm. What I think is revealing about those stories in particular is Jesus treats them very differently than the religious authorities and does give some individual direction, but also is very uncondemning. Mm-hmm. And I think that like seeing Jesus's treatment, like if you're going to call yourself a Christian, like that you follow Jesus's example, if your if your ethics concerning other people's sexuality and sexual behavior is anything but that, it should really be called into question, I think. Like I think you can have opinions all day, but like if you're not treating people similarly like that, mm. then I don't think your view on sexuality is biblically informed. Mm. Mm. So I don't know. That's kind of like the example I'm thinking of. And I'm having trouble like putting it to words that I don't think the Bible necessarily dictates a certain view of sexuality, but I think it like can inform the way that we treat others yeah. in their sexuality yeah. and in sexual problems or sexual abuse or like whether they're victims or perpetrators. Like I think that it can give us a lot of guidance in that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you kind of see what I'm trying to say? I'm not really sure exactly how to say it. I think that makes sense what you're saying. Definitely. Like it's not it's not necessarily an authority through which sex is navigated or discussed, but it can inform how those topics and that conversation comes out. I I see that. Yeah. Like it can guide you. It can it can help you discern and it can help you to discover meaning for yourself, but it's not actually holding any authority when it comes to conversations about sex. So how much do you think God cares that I had sex before I was a married man? Changing topic, but I don't think God I don't think God does care at all. Yeah. I I needed more pastors like you in my life when I was younger. <laughs> I mean, well, here's the uh if you believe God is immutable like mm. the Calvinists do, mm. why would God be offended at your actions? Yeah. Like do does your sexual behavior affect God? Mm. Mhm. Because if you believe God is beyond change, like that shouldn't be possible. I do think people believe that like your sexual behavior doesn't change God and that it's still like wrong. But like this kind of goes back to like one of our episodes about like sin. Like if we believe in a coherent concept of sin and like Mm. I think this is what changed my concept of sin, honestly, because like I've just like come to the belief that like the religious concept of sin is best defined as like something that hurts us. And like, I absolutely believe that like sexual activity can hurt people. Mm. And I think that's morally wrong, but like, I don't think sex itself. Yeah. Right. Right. Sex is a tool. I don't know why I said it like that. I've never heard anybody say that. (laughs) I don't know why you said it that way either. That was, yeah, that was weird. Well, and I think I, me personally, I, this is going to sound really weird. I take comfort in knowing that like, I believe in love in a God who like took on flesh, which means Jesus had erections and probably had some wet dreams and probably explored his sexuality and probably took off a couple times at least hanging out with the disciples. You know, I'm sure they talked about masturbation and things like that. Like I take comfort in knowing that if, if God is to take on flesh that means that God is going to participate in fleshly acts and sex is like the most fleshy act you can possibly, other than eating, you mm. can possibly participate in. Mm. 
And I think like if we are to see ourselves as being made in God's image, like we are beautiful people, that means like sex can be a beautiful thing. And it doesn't have to just be for procreation. Like it can be for pleasure and it can be something that brings people together and sparks something within you. It does not have to be seen always in this negative light. It's it's when it hurts people, like Josh said, like when sex hurts people, when it's used for power dominance and for disrupting life-giving theology, then that's in and of itself something completely different. Mm. But I think sex is a good thing. Sex can be a powerful thing. It can be a beautiful thing. And I think if you were to have sex before marriage, that has nothing, like it's not hurting, like you're not hurt, the other person isn't hurt, unless you were to abuse that other person, then that's something else. But I don't see how sex before marriage affects God in any way. Should 14-year-olds have sex? Ooh. Ooh. Uh, no, and my my only my only my only reason, well not my only reason, but one reason would be understanding like what sex is. Mm, yeah. At 14, I, do you think you can give meaningful consent? Mary was most likely 14. And I don't agree that she like I I think it's sad that she was pregnant at 14. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, but like that was the norm in biblical times. Mm-hmm. Just because it was the norm For, doesn't mean you have to agree with it. Ooh, that's true. Yeah. Would you jump off a building if it was a norm, Josh? Which is where purity culture comes in. Like, I think that's, that's exactly true. how it started. Like, it was them pushing up against societal norms, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. But it has spiraled in a direction that now for some people, the effects of it are hurtful yeah Hmm. and maybe there's a sweet spot in there somewhere in the middle that has a lot to do with like honor and respect and just like yeah consent mutual respect i think those values are important absolutely yeah Hmm. was it the stoics who were the first like philosophical group to like abstain from sex am i crossing wires or am i accurate sounds right because I feel like that is the way Jesus is portrayed. Like, like Emily, I know that you've mentioned on an episode before that you think that it's definitely possible that Jesus had sex and that you don't think that's wrong. I see where you're coming from because I also don't think that sexual activity outside of marriage is necessarily wrong or harmful in and of itself, even though obviously it can be. But of course, sex in marriage can also be that too, like as evidenced by uh, the Bible. Yes. But I think it's very interesting that Jesus is portrayed as not having sexual partners like very different from like other like kingly uh deity godly narratives at the time like caesar for instance like caesar Mm. was like definitely portrayed as having many many partners or or zeus or uh like like just tons of examples right i think it's very interesting that the gospel authors seem to be on the same page about jesus not being portrayed as having sexual partners like that. I I will admit, I do think that that holds some ground and I don't think it's that they're like trying to like, well, hold out on the juicy goss. You know what I mean? And I think part of that too is also like biblical interpretation. So like, sure. Queer theologists would say that like Jesus, you could definitely see stories of Jesus having like sexual partners. You're just not mm. seeing the explicit acts of sex themselves within those but we can see like sexual preferences within jesus Hmm. i'm not sure i agree with that but like i can see someone 
coming from a specific lens of theology and like mm-hmm. trying to find the instances. But I like I could see an argument for Jesus being asexual. Yeah. Because I don't see explicit evidence that in the in the gospel narratives that we have that he was sexually active, which for the time would have been unusual, right? Most people got married. Yeah. Unless you were a eunuch. It would have it would yeah, it would have been kind of taboo at the time. Paul was famously single. And liked to talk about it. Famously. (laughs) Famously single, yes. And liked to talk about it and how good it was. Which is interesting, especially for proponents of purity culture being big fans of Paul, at least in my experience. I won't paint everyone with that brush, but uh, we like to preach a lot more out of Paul than we do the Gospels. It's fascinating to me that like part of the preaching of purity culture, though, was save sex until you're married. And definitely get married because that's clearly God's plan because of Adam and Eve. When Paul is mm. pretty big about saying like, actually, single singleness might be the better way to serve the Lord. Yeah. Ooh. And maybe that was for his. It, again, maybe that was a a cultural thing where like it would have been maybe taboo or at least out of place for Jesus to be single. Oh yeah. For Paul to be well, single, and maybe that's. But I. Th- you know. And I think. Part of it is also, at least from the church's perspective, wanting to bring people to church and wanting to fill the pews. They wanted to be family oriented. And so I think encouraging to start families was huge, Hmm. especially seeing like dying churches and seeing like the movement in Europe where churches were really starting to decline, like attendance was starting to decline. And so they were hoping that families could be those people to start filling in those gaps when generations were dying off. Um, Yeah, that's true. Hmm. So. All right. I kind of saved my hot take for the end. Okay. But do you think that the modern conception and like societal definition of virginity only exists as a byproduct of like slut shaming culture? Hmm. Ooh. Uh, what do you think, Emily? Yes. Because that's what Emily mm. got me thinking about when she was talking about the way, like, the way societal norms are, like, guys are praised for putting a notch on the bedpost, as it were, but a woman is called a slut if she goes and scores after a night out. Yeah. And uh, the only reason I, I pair those two is because I kind of think that the idea of virginity as, like, a social concept is just fake. Like, I don't, I don't think it's real. I think there was something, there's something to do with like, yes, there's a physical thing happening in a female body when the vagina is penetrated for the first time that maybe we can call that virginity. But like uh, Christians like to get around that particular (laughs) guardrail a lot by doing anal and oral. So yes, I didn't realize that was a thing for a long time that like but, people consider that that was not losing your virginity. I know that's so weird. Well, but and I think part of it also like there are ways that a hymen can be broken and have it not be sexually done. Riding a freaking horse. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so and that's where I think like a lot of the a lot of the controversy, you know, I'm just thinking of recently like TI, like his daughter, yeah, you know, going in for his daughter's appointments and making sure her hymen was still intact. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those things oh. where hymens it, can break putting a tampon in. <clears throat> yes. Like it's not 
it is not always a sexual manner. And so I think the concept of virginity was created as a as a as a counterpart for slut shaming and and I, I'm and I'm not saying that entirely like that's not the sole purpose but I think that's a huge proponent of but it. But I mean, there's not a male equivalent. Like, okay, I'll tell you this: this is the Why explicit episode, be? and this is Why right would at the there end. Be? Yeah, there wouldn't. I mean, there wouldn't need to be, as far as I can tell. I mean, like, oh my gosh! All right, so <laughs> I remember going to the doctor when I was young, and I remember going to the doctor after I first, as a young man, discovered masturbating. And I legitimately like lost nights of sleep leading up to this physical because I thought that the doctor would be able to tell that I wasn't a virgin anymore. It's beautiful. <laughs> wow. But this is the this is the kind of neurotic stuff that like some of the teaching I got came mm. about because it was all coming mm, from church. Sure. Very seldom the conversations were happening with my parents. And when they did, they were pretty clinical and they were pretty much just like straightforward. It, it was and it was more about the growth of a fetus than it was how the fetus got there. Sure. But like yeah, that was real. the kind of neurotic stuff that was going through my head because all I had heard was basically like, you need to save your virginity. And I thought because I had <laughs> I had jacked off once that I wasn't a virgin anymore. I literally thought that was it for me. I was like, oh, the doctor's gonna be able to tell, and because I'm a minor, he's gonna tell my parents and Oh, oh my. Yeah. Okay, I think I have an answer, oh. Stephen. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't think it's caused by the slut-shaming philosophy, but I do think it can be related. But my hypothesis is that somewhere along the way, people just recognized the like the uniqueness and often the specialness of someone's first time and mm. like when two people share that first time, like obviously I know that was the case with you that that can be like a very unique bonding experience and that for a lot of people that doesn't always equate to like lifelong partners. Mm-hmm. Right. So I can see that developing first, like on a social level. And then I think that that turned into, especially in the purity movement, like a sort of like unfounded biological opinion that there is a biological difference, which I don't think many people have this opinion anymore, but I think for a while, a lot of people Sure. I think maybe we are the last generation, hopefully, that like is grown up with the opinion that there is a biological difference between virginity and non-virginity. Like, I don't. Did you guys ever hear about Bethel having this movement for a while where they were like restoring people's virginity, like yes. physically? Yes. I don't what? know. Did you not hear about this? No. So I think I don't know everything about this, but I think that it started more like symbolically. Like people who had been like, uh, like very active sexually for a long time, like like had like a very like lack of a better term, a looser sexual ethic, like not aiming towards like only for a lifelong partner or monogamous, and then they would like have a conversion experience, and then I don't know if it started out with people praying for this to happen or like it started with people just feeling like it happened, but there started to be this phenomenon where people would like pray for and then feel like their virginity was physically restored. Oh, wow. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Which, like, on a biological level, like, it is possible for, like, hymens to heal and, like, vaginas are weird, uteruses are weird. (laughs) Yes, they are. But, like, Stephen, you're absolutely right that, like, there's no male equivalent. So, like, even if you believe that the hymen is somehow tied to virginity, like, how would you ever measure that in a male? 
No, you wouldn't. So you. So I agree with you on some level that but, like virginity, like quote unquote, doesn't biologically exist. But I will admit, I see people trying to highlight the beauty of like somehow your you're, like your first time being special and foundational hmm. and can be very meaningful and trying to like preserve that somehow. Like I, sure. I feel like I see where the urge comes from. I guess. Sure. But I still don't know like how you can have a healthy concept of that without like. Mm-hmm. F- people up i'm not sure like i don't know how i will teach my kids someday if i have kids like i just like keep thinking back to like how much i felt like my sex ed from both my parents and the public school system sucked like i i feel like i got Mm. more sex ed from porn and that's not a great thing Mm. correct um yeah like i like thinking back to that like i'm sure my parents didn't know how to broach the conversations with me I don't know how I would broach a conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that like, this is a great example of like, even though sex has obviously been around since the beginning of humanity and like, we've obviously figured out how to do it. Uh, we like, haven't quite mastered the, the procreation of procreation. Right. Hmm. Mm. I like the way you said that. That was good. I also appreciate Josh that you are taking a much more even tact. I'm, I feel like I've 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 had the hot takes and some angry takes, and you're 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 bringing us back to the middle somewhere, and I like that. Well, I think it's okay to have the angry takes. Like, I mean, as we discussed on our anger episode. Oh yeah, listen to that. Well, yeah, no, like, I, I like especially for people who have felt hurt by purity culture and oh, or abused. Yeah. I haven't done the thinking though of like you know the, even in even in your last point about like yeah, I mean the first time is special, so maybe like we're trying to just preserve that almost as a gift right like so a parent oh careful careful. oh well i think (laughs) i think the first time is special if you consent to it yes yeah exactly very yes because i think there are so many instances where that's not the case for people and i i suppose though is there a better way to signal that you're consenting than a marriage ceremony a couple hours earlier yeah, as long as we live in a society where women actually have a choice. That's what I mean. That matter. And we do in America at this point. So, right, yeah. true. Which is where all this came from for me. So, I don't know. Yeah, you're you're offering uh you're offering thoughts that I hadn't allowed in yet. So, I appreciate cool. that. But almost like uh I I penetrated your thoughts oh. on this. Oh my god. Oh my god. Are you serious? Wow. You just went there? Wow. I need to not finish with this drink. Practice safe podcast yeah. listening, yeah. everyone. This was an explicit episode. <laughs> Check if, yourself. If you for have any... kids still with you, uh, you obviously know how to do it. So you didn't need to listen to this. Wow. That's fun. Okay. But also, actually, to that point, I have I have heard uh, quite a few parents kind of debrief their style or method of like talking to their kids about it. And Mm. I think the best thing I've heard so far is basically just make talk about sex normal. It's not, Mm. you're not getting the talk once from your mom, once from your dad. It's like, it's something that is just a, an ongoing dialogue and that is age appropriate. So like as kids are becoming curious about why their genitals do that or feel that way, you can have that conversation at an age appropriate level and 
Yes. Right. Like as they age up, you can, you know, introduce new elements of the conversation and eventually reveal like, surprise, your <laughs> mom and dad do that too. And it's fun, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I just, I love the framing of like, yeah, it's not a sex talk. It's a sex dialogue. It's just like, it just comes up. It's a relationship. Okay. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. Hmm. I like that. I think that's definitely how I'm going to approach talking about that with my children one day. Good for you. Good mm. for you. And also just having at this point just completely released any sense of shame for having sex with Dixie before we got married. Like, so over that, I could care less. If anything, I feel lucky because I've gotten to have sex more. <laughs> that's funny. Anyway. Oh, I feel I feel like we're on the downward slope here. Yeah, I, th- I think we've already reached climax. Um, Emily, so do you have good. a horny blessing for us as we go out? This is so good. Thank you for listening a to us this far. Blessing. A horny blessing from the pastor. <laughs> hey, you said sex is good. You, that that sounds like a horny blessing to me. It's true. Oh, ain't meant to that. Oh. We're gonna get so many bad reviews over this. <laughs> yeah, we might leave us a good review. Hey, if you're still yeah. Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star review and tell us what you like and tell other people what you like. We'd really appreciate that. We've gotten called out with some one stars as heathens, so that's fun. This this ties into my benediction, actually. Oh, amazing. Um, so, you know, sex is one of those topics that can be so controversial in the church, but it is a part of our everyday life that we need to explore We need to discern, we need to discover, and it can be something that is beautiful and transformative. Just keep having those conversations. Be mindful, be safe, but enjoy your body and just know that sex rocks. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I mean, think about it. Like, if we didn't have, like, if I didn't have sex, I wouldn't have had Thea. So, it's very you know. true. Yeah. Do you guys like to be choked? What? No. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I'd get him at some point. That's very good. That was funny. Amen. I do a little bit. Okay, I'm going to stop my recording now. Yeah, let's do that. Welcome to the Whiskey Bench where we pair cocktails with conversation. Whether we're diving deep into a meaty subject like the history of fascism, or why monetary policy drives inflation, or just bringing you the highlights of a crazy news week, we aim to look past the simple answers and discuss the complexity of our wild world. So pull up a chair, pour yourself a drink, and join us on the Whiskey Bench. Highline Media Network. Artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.